surprise, we have a bonus episode for you. But before we dive in, I want to personally invite you to join us for our next hackathon. Last season, we introduced you to the themes, insights, and many of the participants that shaped past hackathons. But if you or your brand are big thinkers and or trendsetters, we'd love to have you involved. If you want in, you can find more at the URL in the show notes or go to info.thinklab.design backslash design hackathon, all one word. The topic for our upcoming hackathon ties closely to this episode. In an industry built largely on face-to-face relationships, we were forced in the short term to accelerate digital connections. And while we spent a lot of time talking about the hybrid world, we believe those human connections in physical space ironically matter more than ever as we enter this hybrid world. So in this episode, we will explore the question, how will our industry leverage physical space for growth? We've explored that in the traditional Think Lab way, with inspiration from within the design industry and from expertise outside our traditional view. So whether you're a design firm, manufacturer, distributor, or anything in between, this episode will have insights for you. I don't feel like we've missed the ball too much on having creative cross-pollination, but I don't think there's anything to substitute what it's like to do it in person. Recently, my partners purchased two storefronts just a couple blocks from the office, and we're wanting to really transform the storefront into more of a public-facing version of Marvel. We've got all kinds of ideas of what this space can really become, but we're feeling like we want a place other than just the office and the conference rooms where people can come together and gather and really have that collaboration space and, and maybe do it in a little bit more of a public way than we are right now. The voices you just heard were Tyler Silvestro and Lissa So, partners at Marvel, about how they're leveraging physical space in new ways as they think about growth. Then in chapter two, we'll bring in our outside the industry expert, Emily Arell, president and chief commercial officer at Casper, also a member of the Forbes Next 50, recognizing the up and coming leaders set to revolutionize American business. I'll just tease you with a bit about how Casper is thinking about new approaches to the balance of the physical and digital world in their own sales process. I am a believer in physical retail. I do not subscribe to the fact that like all stores will be closing tomorrow and that is the end. Like I just, I, I think especially in the business you're in, the business I'm in, like people like to see and touch, not all people, but a lot of people like that to be part of their buying experience. I think where I'm really thinking about and challenging myself and my team to growth is how are we really thinking about omni-channel for real? To me, when people think about omni-channel, what they're usually talking about is we sell things online and we sell things in stores. That's not omni-channel to me. That is, you have two channels of distribution. Omni-channel to me is thinking about the interplay between the channel rather than a, I went to the store, I came home, I had to do the entire thing over again once I went online. That's just two different ways to buy products. So to me, that is a small difference in the way we think about the interplay from the channels, but I think a very important one and how 
the real winners over the next couple of years are going to really emerge. So listen on as we explore the importance of physical space in the hybrid era. Welcome to season two of Design Nerds Anonymous, the podcast that sparks curiosity at the intersection of business and design. I'm your host, Amanda Schneider, founder and president at ThinkLab, the research division of Sandow Design Group and sister company to media brands you know and love, like Interior Design, Metropolis, Lux, and more. At ThinkLab, our passion is sharing inspiration for your business, fuel for your design process, and connection with people and ideas for positive disruption. So thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. Let's dive into chapter one. Our first interviewees join us from Marvel, a firm working at the intersection of public and private space. Meet Tyler Silvestro and Lisa So. So my name is Lisa So. I'm a founding partner of Marvel, which is a multidisciplinary design practice with offices in New York and San Juan. I've been really working with the other founding partner, Jonathan Marvel, for about 18 years now and and really evolved our practice, you know, from being a very New York centric practice into more of a national, even international practice, you know, in, in doing all types of work across the country. My name is Tyler Silvestro. I am a landscape architect with Marvel. I recently joined as a partner as we expand our multidisciplinary approach to the design world. So we now have two landscape architectural partners to match the three founding partners, Guido, Lissa, and Jonathan. Now, one thing ThinkLab has seen as we analyze data on market evolution as a key strategy to success in turbulent times is diversification. And what interested us about Marvel is how they're telling their unique brand story about diversification. Historically, we were we were really just an architecture practice, but we always had our like our roots in public space and which, you know, really kind of evolved from planning and urban design and and then evolved really into landscape design. We have a, a robust landscape team. We also have an urban design team, a planning team, an interior design team. And what it's allowed us to do is is to sell to our clients all encompassing design practice that can look at all of these things that really apply to to their projects. I think what makes us different is that we really operate as one studio. Architects don't see buildings in, in a singular fashion anymore. And I, architects are starting to understand and, and landscape architects are really starting to kind of take advantage of the fact that a site is more than just the building facade and everything within, but there's opportunity to design public spaces, open spaces, be they to the tenants or to the public, that really kind of enhance the experience of architecture in ways that we're really seeing across all of our projects. And it is not an unusual approach. It's not novel, but we find that we can do it in a way that's far more efficient and also a lot more fun when we do it all under one roof. When he says under one roof, he means culturally. Because as we look at what was a sudden shift for many businesses as the world went remote and virtual in 2020 and now moves hybrid was simply a normal way of working for them already. Even before the pandemic, because we have offices in New York and San Juan, we've had teams in both locations working collaboratively for the past six years. And we'll have a project that has you know, all of those disciplines, and you'll have a portion of that team in New York, and you'll have a portion of that team in San Juan. 
they will be really working together basically virtually. We've been doing that for a long, long time. So as the as the pandemic hit, we already had the technology in place that allowed everybody to go remote and not be in the office. And and so I feel like that really gave us a head start and allowed us to really understand what this working remotely was was going to be all about. But Tyler and Lissa are bullish on in-person space for their firm. It's not just about fighting burnout. It's about proximity to others and sparking the creative process. Architects spend three years buried in a studio in their educational phase where that proximity to other people is not just kind of the norm, but it's critical to the creative process. And that's something that I personally want to see more of is that we get together so that our creativity levels kind of come back to where that where that once was. And I, I don't feel like we've we've missed the ball too much on having creative kind of cross-pollination, but I don't think there's anything to substitute what it's like to do it in person. And as we look at the future of growth, I was fascinated to hear how Marvel is thinking about a new approach to their own physical space. Well, I think one opportunity that's opened up is we always kind of struggled with our office can fit about 70 people max in New York and about 35 in, in San Juan. And we always thought like that's if we hit that cap, we're going to have to figure out something else. And I think this past year kind of opened our eyes up to the fact that, well, we can expand beyond that because we don't necessarily have to think about everybody having a permanent desk all all the time, all of us, right? And that can be a little bit more fluid. And so that that kind of point where we were hitting up against with our real estate versus our capacity, we feel like we can expand beyond that. One thing that we've been doing my partners purchased two storefronts just a couple blocks from the office and we're wanting to really transform the storefront into more of a public facing version of marvel and that it's going to be for our staff our marvel community so that say we do end up in a in a place where not everybody does have a permanent desk this storefront will be a place where people can kind of gather or have lunch or kind of have hoteling stations but it also can become really an event space for us or a gallery or we've got all kinds of ideas of what this space can really become. But we're feeling like we want a place other than just the office and the conference rooms where people can come together and gather and really have that collaboration space and, and maybe do it in a little bit more of a public way than we are right now. They're leveraging physical space not only for their employees, but also for their community. This creates space for creativity and underlines the importance of outdoor space as we all move forward from the pandemic. I asked, what made them optimistic for the future? And here's what Tyler had to say. My answer to that question will be completely biased towards landscape architects. <laughs> but Lissa is touching on all the things that I would say just through my kind of cone of vision. The public interaction that Lisa just described to me is that is what I think there's a ton of opportunity for companies such as ours and, and others that deal with the design and the provision of public spaces to really start to have leverage in discussions with cities, with schools, with clients that the public space is as critical as other facets of various projects, especially architecture projects, be they rooftop tent terrace spaces or ground floor, big public facing spaces, or just the provision of parks and plazas and public spaces. 
It was the only refuge for people for the past year and a half is to get out of their house and to go to a, an open air public space. And some of the advocacy work that I've done in my past and the writing that I've done in my past is almost always focused on the importance of public space. And now I'm hoping to continue to do that from, from our position and stance at Marvel towards public space. Essentially, public space is, is, has been seen as the savior. And I, I do find, I do hope to find a way to kind of keep beating that drum so that landscape architects and architects can continue to collaborate to provide world-class public spaces for all people to enjoy. And that's that's what my goal is. And, and that crosses over to all types of projects that we're doing. It relates to our theater projects and thinking about the, the kind of lobby and common spaces of you know the theaters. Those are very public spaces that can be used by the overall communities. Same thing with schools and thinking about their ground floors and their cafeterias and how does that directly connect to the streets and to the communities around them. So there's a lot of crossover there between larger, big urban public spaces down to smaller, more intimate public spaces as well. This type of thinking is not limited to New York City and only major metropolises. We know the openness to remote work has made many rethink their geographic location. And for more information on that, you should definitely check out ThinkLab's new U.S. Design Industry Benchmark Report. So we asked, Lissa, how are secondary cities responding to this? Is there anything we should be considering as we look at growth, creativity, and physical space? Lissa mentioned that I'm actually in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we're looking to potentially open a new office space in, in Virginia. And that's not, this isn't the first time we've talked about this. There's been a lot of talk about that over the years. But I think that the reality to those kinds of circumstances are clearer and nearer than they have been before. As we talk about this from a project by project standpoint, I also think that it would be a good time for architects to connect with municipalities and city planners to start thinking more holistically at a planning scale, what can be done to accommodate this moment and to think about their own futures. I see a fascinating opportunity here for our industry to help people see physical space in a new light. We know what it's like to live in and come from a place that has all this incredible opportunity and have also done a lot of great things and, and continue to do so. And she and I have both spent time advocating and thinking about our hometowns in terms of ways to not New Yorkify them, but to consider them as places that have their own really unique culture that they can use to develop kind of a broader reach if that's even what they're interested in. I think those places have an incredible opportunity right now, and we hope to be part of that. One of my favorite questions to ask is this. If you had to throw down a gauntlet to our industry to really challenge us to think bigger and be optimistic about where we're headed, what would you say? Tyler's response? Slow down to speed up. That's a big question. That's a really big question. Man, we're, we're already challenged in so many ways. I could describe one way we're challenged, which is that our work, unlike Amazon and unlike the tech world around us, is a slow process. And I don't, I hope it doesn't change anytime soon because creativity and collaboration, it takes a while. But we do see clients who want things done faster and we see timelines that are shorter and shorter all the time. So I, I guess. In that challenge, there's an opportunity to streamline various components and efforts of the architect. I know that they very much exist. We use all the software that's currently available to us. 
But again, creativity is a process. Decision-making is a process. We work with other human beings and there's an emotional attachment to the creative process. I want it to continue to stay slow and considered and deeply thoughtful. And that's what we hope to keep doing. So I guess I challenge architects and designers who are listening to this to consider the idea that slow is good when it comes to design process and to take your time. So I totally piggyback off what you I, said, Tyler. But... Yeah, I, I, don't think, I don't think they're in opposition. I could see that the title of an architecture book called like the thoughtful efficiency or something. What we want to do is make sure that we're not putting things into the world because we didn't have enough time to make them better. I hope that that's something that even as we do become more efficient, because that's just the way the world is and architecture has been forever, that we continue to make deeply thoughtful spaces and projects, even if they are at an increasingly alarming pace. And with that big challenge, let's dive into chapter two. Now for some inspiration outside of the design and architecture landscape, as we continue to think about physical space and creating experiences. So if you're considering your own offices, like Tyler and Lissa, there may be some thoughtful insights in here for you. But even more so, we want you to imagine the difficulties your clients have had visualizing product solutions in their own space. If you're a B2B product manufacturer or distributor rethinking your showroom experience, I promise you'll be inspired from this, perhaps, unexpected source as you think about product showrooms in the interiors industry. Meet Emily. I'm Emily Orell, and I'm the president and chief commercial officer at Casper. So I run all the commercial functions. We have 70 plus stores, 25 plus retail partners, and then obviously a strong e-commerce business. So you may be thinking, what does a retail mattress company have to do with the design industry? ThinkLab has been tracking the influence of B2C experiences on the B2B buying experience for a while. And we were really inspired by her story and how she's leveraging physical space with an omni-channel link for growth. Let's hear more about the Casper approach. Overall at Casper, our goal is to elevate the science of sleep while inspiring the joy and the magic of bedtime. What we wanted to do in our showroom experience is really make sleep joyful and show how our products can make your bedroom a sanctuary and a place where you want to be. Not where you want to watch TV or work or do other things, but a place where you want to sleep. If you've been mattress shopping lately in a store, what is extremely difficult about it is you're in a store with like 30 beds. If you're not in a Casper store, but you're in a big box store, you're in a store with a bunch of beds. And then you're asked to just lay on this random bed with a stranger staring at you to say like, do you like it? And it's a very difficult thing to know if you like it. And so we try and provide with privacy and quiet. We think about lighting and the fabrics that surround you to make you as comfortable as possible so you can really understand how your body is responding to our product. And so we brought all those things into our showroom. I have to give credit to the founders who did this. I think when Philip and the team founded Casper, it's one of the reasons I joined, they really revolutionized the shopping experience, right? They took something that's sort of a terrible experience and said, how do we make this better? And so we really think of our showroom as a very immersive experience. And it's when you walk through the space, it's very true to our values of redesigning the sleep space, but also feeling 
happy and joyful and very aesthetically pleasing. Recent Think Lab research shows that designers are spending more time than ever visualizing ideas. But what if we could take this immersive experience to product in the design industry to help our clients not only visualize, but experience it in the physical space? As a former showroom manager myself, I know the challenges of creating setups with mass appeal, yet local flavor. But as we watch ongoing uneven recovery from the global pandemic, we're seeing microeconomies emerge and the importance of more localized experiences. So I asked Emily how they customize their experiences to local markets. Great question. It's something that I really had to learn about since I came to Casper a few years ago because my background is in the apparel industry for the most part. And, you know, if you're in California selling value apparel, your competitors are the same as they are when you're in New York, right? It's pretty much the same. Maybe you have a few boutiques that are different, but it's very much the same. That's very different in the mattress industry. If you live in San Francisco or Chicago or Orlando or New York, you're shopping in a very different set of places. And so we really look at building out city by city, a combination of retail partners, our own stores, and then obviously it's all complemented by our e-commerce business. We have a very big country that we live in and parts of it, people shop very differently. They're looking for different things. Value means different things and different technical aspects of the product are important. So for example, in Florida in the summer, people are really thinking about cooling technology. That is very meaningful. It's very hot. But those regional differences are really important as we think about what we sell and also the way we sell. We might be at a mall in Boca and the sales techniques and the customer profile is going to be very different from the Mall of America in Minnesota, where you have a heavy tourist contingency. So they might not be buying as many mattresses, but maybe they're buying more pillows and and other accessories. And so I think we have to really think about what the consumer is looking for in the place that we're in and then what that geography dictates. To summarize, they're not just selling a thing. They're helping you achieve something. One of the things when I first met Philip that he said to me is, imagine the potential of a well-rested world. And I think about that all the time. Imagine if every day you woke up and you and everyone around you had the optimal amount of sleep. You know, we'd be happier and smarter and more efficient and just be a more joyful world. And so we think about that a lot at Casper and how do we use the science of sleep and the feedback we get to the consumers. I think it's important for us to continue to provide innovation in the market where we're not just selling you a thing, but we're selling you a system that can help you achieve, basically solve whatever problem it is that you have sleeping. And we know that over 60% of people, the biggest issue they have in the night is getting too hot, which is why we kick off our covers and (laughs) switch blankets and roll over a million times during the night. And so that's what I'm really excited about when I look at growth. So as we dive into finding inspiration from Casper's growth, Emily shares the three places they are most focused, which may inspire you too. Number one, product innovation. First of all, it all stems from the product. We have to have enough product innovation to be able to offer you to solve your problems. You can come in and you can say like, look, I'm always freezing and my partner is always hot. What's the solve here, right? And maybe we can say to you, maybe you need a split king and you each need your own duvet and his needs to have cooling technology and yours is not gonna have cooling technology. So you can set the thermostat at 70 and you don't have to fight anymore. Those sort of innovations in product plus new distribution channels. We're continuing to distribute 
in new locations with our retail partners. We announced a you know, partnership with Bed Bath & Beyond not too long ago with our first branded Shop and & Shop and their new Chelsea store. And so we continue to look at growth and great products plus increased distribution is really what I'm most excited about. But the second aspect of growth that Emily is excited about supports our mantra at ThinkLab, that the biggest future disruptions will come from process innovation over product innovation. Her second and third focus, as you'll see, have direct ties to the product sales process in the design industry as well. So number two, human capital empowered with knowledge to problem solve. But the second is we have to be able to have sleep content, the people who understand the content and can teach it. You can walk in and say, I just had a baby. I haven't slept in six weeks. Help. (laughs) Do you have any products that can help me with that? Right. If you think about how you may walk into an Apple store to the Genius Bar and I just hand them my phone and say, I don't know what's going on. And then 45 minutes later, I walk out and everything's better. Think about that experience in a Casper store to be able to walk in and say, I haven't slept in weeks. I'm too hot. I'm rolling over all the time. Can you help me? And to leave with two new pillows and a new bed and a new sheet that changes your life. That is an experience that it really, I mean, of course, I'm going to say this, but it really is priceless to be able to go from not sleeping to sleeping really is life changing. And that's the kind of experience we want. And number three, and the one that interests me the most is Emily's view, not on just creating an omnichannel experience, but integrating that experience to build trust and consistency. The biggest thing in building trust is consistency. I want to know as a customer, if you I mean, this is like everything in life, right? If you tell me you're going to ship it to me in five days, I want it to be at my house in five days. If you tell me it's going to keep me cool, I want it to keep me cool. What we really think about is the entire customer journey, everywhere from you come on our website, it is easy to find the product. I understand what the price is. There's no hidden stuff. It's easy for me to get to checkout. You send me a very clear email. The product arrives on my door on the day you say it's going to. Or conversely, you're in one of our stores and you have that good experience. You're brought through the experience with the sleep associate. You take your mattress with you out to the parking lot with the help of one of our associates to your car. To me, trust is all about consistency, consistency of experience, consistency of the product. As Emily shares, we often let org charts get in the way of that consistency. I think if there's one thing we've learned over the past 18 months, it's how digital tools can help build trust and a consumer experience. I think this was very common five years ago. It's still very common now. We let our org charts get in the way of customer experience, meaning I'm shopping at a brand and I get a discount online, but I go into the store and they don't honor the discount. Or I buy it in the store and I can't return it online. Or because internally many times, Although people say omni-channel a lot, maybe the organization isn't set up that way or the incentives aren't aligned internally for people to think about whatever the consumer wants is the way we have to service them. A mattress is a considered purchase. So many times people will come into the store, they'll lie on the bed, they'll take a look around, they'll spend some time with one of our sleep associates, and then they want to go home and talk to their partner. They want to think about it. They want to research online a little bit. And then they will end up transacting online. So we have to have an organizational culture set up where the the retail team is not dinged because their conversion went down because somebody came in, spent some time, and then transacted somewhere else. You've heard us say this often. The pandemic really only sped up trends and changes that were already happening. But 
people still want brands to meet them where they are. Look, the pandemic has in particular, I think, just sped up a lot of the trends that we already had in the market. People were already buying their groceries online. And then many, many, many more people were buying their groceries online. Some people will go back to going in store and we'll probably meet in the middle with where the trends shake out. We think about that a lot. How do we make sure we're meeting the consumer where they are and that we're allowing them to shop in the way that's most comfortable? And at many times that means in multiple channels, they might go to Raymore and Flanagan in the city. Then they might go check out our store in the World Trade Center, and then they might transact online later that week after they go home and think about it. And so we have to have it set up internally so that pricing is consistent, product is consistent, displays are consistent, and it's easy to understand for the customer. And this is my favorite quote from the episode. Omnichannel isn't good enough if the org chart gets in the way. We have to make sure we're integrating our omnichannel presence. I am a believer in physical retail. I do not subscribe to the fact that like all stores will be closing tomorrow and that is the end. Like I just, I, I think especially in the business you're in, the business I'm in, like people like to see and touch, not all people, but a lot of people like that to be part of their buying experience. Where I'm really thinking about and challenging myself and my team to growth is, I think people want that to be part of their experience, but not their entire experience. So how are we really thinking about omni-channel for real? Because to me, when people think about omni-channel, what they're usually talking about is we sell things online and we sell things in stores. That's not omni-channel to me. That is, you have two channels of distribution. Omni-channel to me is thinking about the interplay between the channels. We have a lot of work still to do in this at Casper, but I think there are some retailers who do this fantastically, some in the furniture space, where you can walk in, have your showrooming experience, fill your cart with the sales associate who is very knowledgeable. They can help you with the swatches. They can build your bedroom, but then you can go home. They ship everything to your house in terms of wood swatches, fabric swatches. They lay it out for you. It's easy. It's in an email. It's already in your cart. All the pricing is very clear. And then you transact however you want. You can call them on the phone. You can go back into the store. You can go online and it's very easy. That to me is an omni-channel experience rather than a, I went to the store, I came home, I had to do the entire thing over again once I went online. That's just two different ways to buy products. So to me, that is a small difference in the way we think about the interplay from the channels, but I think a very important one and how the real winners over the next couple of years are going to really emerge. So as we bring this episode to an official and final close, I want to challenge all of us in this industry to apply these concepts as you look at leveraging physical space for growth. We know that digital will have to be a part of our process in this new hybrid era, but how do we leverage our physical space for the most impact? And how do we integrate our physical, digital, and human capital for a seamless experience across all of our channels? More on that in season three of Design Nerds Anonymous. Stay tuned. <laughs>